0: Okay, I want to talk to you about some of the changes in our society. We, we live in uh, what's been described as post-modernity. I'm not, I'm not going to talk about post-modernity per se. I want to try and highlight for you, is, is the mic okay? Is it ringing a little bit? Is it it's okay? Good. Uh, sometimes my, my voice and microphones sort of get onto a resonance that can... Did you do that deliberately? was it Satan? (laughs) Um, I want to talk to you about some of the changes in our society. First, one I want to point out is this. We live today in a culture that has moved from authority to so. It is ringing now, isn't it? We live in a. Maybe it just needs lessened a little bit, does it? I don't know. Why am I telling the technical guy what to do? we got it now? That's better, isn't it? Yeah. When I was a little kid, doctors still paid home visits, right? And what would happen? They did. I mean, they don't do that now, do that. of. what would happen is this. When the doctor was coming, the door would be left unlocked. Because what the doctor did was to go, open the door and walk in. Because the doctor was a figure of authority. School teachers were figures of authority. I wouldn't have dared go home and tell my dad a school teacher walloped me. Because what he would say was, You must have needed it, so I'll wallop you again. <laughs> yeah. And and we live in a culture that has changed so that what what people want now is not authority but celebrity. I mean, how else can you account for television shows like um, Big Brother and, and I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here? I mean, to be honest, they're really very boring, except that people are fascinated by celebrity. David Beckham is more famous for being famous than he is for being a footballer. You will see... You, you, you know, you go into Google Images or anything like that and, and just put Beckham in and you will find more photographs of Beckham looking like this, some do, than in his football strip playing football because we are fascinated by celebrity and, and we imagine that, that celebrity is how my life becomes significant. Everybody wants to be... You know, they ask kids... It used to be that you asked a kid what he wanted to be. He might want to be a footballer or he might want to be a doctor or an engine driver but he wanted to be something. These days when they ask school kids, a lot of school kids just say, I want to be famous and I'm only interested in the other stuff if that helps me to be famous. That's a huge shift in our society and it impacts the church because the minister The pastor, the vicar, used to be a figure of authority, not just in the church, but in the community. The church was a source of authority. And this move from authority to celebrity has been compounded by the fact that so often the authority figures in our community have let us down. I mean, we've just lived through the expenses scandal. And the reputation and the status in the public mind of members of parliament is probably as low as it's ever been in my lifetime. They're all in it for what they'll get out of it, you hear people say. And it's been a massive change in our society. People don't trust authority. So in days gone by when we could say simply, the Bible says it, and people would say, "Well, the Bible is a source of authority, and we believe it." These are very, very different days. It's a major change in our society. Let me point out another change to you, please. <clears throat> I call this one: "We've moved from being joiners to jugglers." When I was a little kid, I joined the Cubs. Any of you guys were in Cubs? And a neat little cap, a woggle, and uh, now. When I joined Cubs, my I don't <laughs> scoutmaster. 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 Right. When, when I joined Cubs, my dad sat me down and he said, listen, son, if you join Cubs, you have to go every week and you're not suddenly leaving if you take it into your head. If you join something, you join it and you are part of it. You can leave after a year if you want But if you join, because that's the culture we lived in. People joined things, right? We now live in a culture where people juggle stuff. Well, I know they join some things, like every year in January, loads of people join the local gym. But (laughs) why is the gym, why do people make money out of gyms? Because they know that if 10 people join the gym, Three of them will still be coming by February and probably one of them by May. Do you know what I mean? So, and, and people have so much in their life. They juggle stuff. I often hear pastors, when, when you ask a pastor, what size is your church in terms of the congregation? They'll almost always say to you, well, on a good Sunday, <laughs> if they were all there at the same time, there'd be that many. But on a typical Sunday, there's that many. Because people juggle things in their life. It is a very different kind of society. That kind of ingrained loyalty to somebody or other has gone. We live in a society of jugglers and it impacts everything in our society. It impacts relationships. People juggle relationships. When I was a little kid growing up, I did not know one person who had been divorced. Now, I'll bet you walk into any church or any room, there will hardly, I'll be amazed if there's one family there who hasn't been impacted one way or another by divorce. It's a very, very different world we live in. Give us another one, Mark, please. Co-workers to consumers. Again, when I was a little kid, we had on the corner of the road, miners' houses where I lived. There was a co-op, and if the co-op didn't have it, we weren't eating it. Yeah, and they might have corn flakes, but that was that was all they had. Yeah, you know they didn't have thirty different kinds of cereals. You you know people were coal workers. Uh, my dad was a coal miner, and and. People just, they did their job and then they bought what they needed. We now live in a world in which we have become consumers with infinite choice. Wasn't it Henry Ford said when the very earliest motor cars, you can have any color you like provided it's black. Now, you know, you, you, if you buy a car, they, they, they customize it, they do all sorts of things. There are thousands of lines on the, the shelves of our supermarkets, you know? You, like, you, when you have breakfast, when you, have, when you stay with somebody, we only at dinner with you, but if we'd been having breakfast, in order to impress us, you would have had to have put at least six different cereals on the breakfast table. I know what usually happens in our house, they all go bad because we haven't eaten them. We fancied them at the beginning, but, but you know what I mean? We become consumers. See, that affects church. We've, been, we've become consumers about church. People go to church saying, what do I get out of it? You know, is the preaching good enough for us? What have they got for my kids? It's a consumer mentality. Is the pastor any good at preaching? Does he look after me when I'm ill? It's, it's a consumer society with, with a concentration on my rights. It's my right to have all this. And, and we lose that memory that just a very short time ago, a tiny short time ago in terms of human history, none of the stuff that we take for granted did we have. You know, we don't subscribe to Sky or anything like that. We've got Freeview and Freesat. We've got loads of channels. I used to take the accumulator battery, a wet battery, because we lived in a house without electricity. I used to take that to the shop every Thursday because you got it changed over with the one that had been in the shop charging. And that was that charge. That, we didn't have radios, we had a wireless. You know, and in my lifetime, we've moved from that to an infinite number of channels because we are consumers. Here's one that's related to it. Try this one call this one, we've moved from farm to feel good. You know, it used to be that we lived in an agricultural economy. Where you either worked on the farm or you you worked in some uh, business that supported the farm or that sold the farm produce. And then of course our country went through the industrial revolution and people moved to cities and we were an industrial economy. And then in our lifetime with the advent of digital technology uh, we've moved to an information economy. And then we've moved into what is really a kind of experience economy. People pay for experiences make me feel good. You no longer just go to a cinema and look at a screen. It's surround sound with stadium seating. And you can have surround sound at home. You, you don't just go for a meal in a restaurant. You go to an Italian restaurant or a, a tapas bar or whatever and you have an experience. It's a feel good economy. People want to feel good. You know, It's about what my experience. People go on holidays. They pay for holidays that won't make them feel good. They go down the gym because they want to feel good. Kids get mugged in school playgrounds for a a sweat top or a pair of trainers that have got a particular logo, that are a particular brand because they make us feel good about ourselves. That's the kind of transition in a couple of centuries that this country has gone through. It's a very different society. Here's two that are particularly telling for us in the church. We now live in a culture that has moved from consequences to options. There are two reasons for this. My computer knows that I'm thick, right? So when I hit the delete button, a little notice comes up saying, now do you really want to delete this? Right? Because it knows I can, so then I put yes and I delete it and even after I've deleted it, it's in the deleted box. Yeah? Yeah? And even after I've deleted it from the deleted box, somebody who knows about computers can come and find it. Where on earth is that? I don't know. But, but you know, it's given us that sense of, it's not about consequences. It's all about options. We live in a world where people don't think so much about consequences. They think about options. Now let me, you, you can't really talk about this subject without touching on this area when I was growing up and we were advising young people about their conduct in matters of sexuality mums and dads and school teachers would talk about consequences didn't they there was the consequences of an unwanted pregnancy the the, the, the consequence of a sexually transmitted disease the times runs a supplement every Saturday called body and soul that's significant in itself that the times runs a supplement called body and soul A couple of years ago there was a letter and I'm never sure whether these letters to the agony columns are made up or whether they're real it doesn't actually affect what I'm going to say but the letter was and forgive me again I don't want to be indelicate or embarrass anybody but the letter was from a young lady she was 19 if I remember right and her sister had just turned 16 and the letter was saying my sister would like to lose her virginity with my boyfriend. What do you think about that? Now, if your grandkids or kids came and asked you that, you'd throw your hands up in horror and say, what do I think about it? It's enough to make my hair stand on end if I had any. What the, this letter was saying, okay, let's look at the options. Is your boyfriend gentle? Is, is he going to be kind to her? Um, is your sister uh, emotionally able to cope with this? And so it went on. And this is not from some cheap mucky rag sold under the counter, you know, in a plastic bag. This is the Times newspaper. Do you see what I mean? We live in a world that no longer thinks of consequences, it thinks about options. I've got all sorts of options. And and it's it's hugely affected, you know, it's affected things like marriage. People look for their options. We can choose to get married, we can choose not to get married. I can choose to stay married or I can choose to walk out because I have options. Let me pick on, and and, and we'll take a little break after this, but let me talk about one that is really a challenge to Christians. It's this change. We've moved from principles to people. Let me tell you what I mean by that. We often say, it's Christians, don't we, this country has lost all its standards. There are no standards left. Anything goes. Actually, that's not true. It's much more complicated than that. What's happened has been a move from principles... So just a concern about people. Let me give you the perfect illustration. And again, I want to speak about this carefully. I don't want to be indelicate or insensitive. But for me, one of the most revealing moments of the way our society has changed came two years ago when Ron Atkinson, who was a football manager and then was a football pundit, was uh, commentating on a football match, a European game between Chelsea. And a team in Europe, I can't remember who the other team was. But at the end of the broadcast, Ron Atkinson made a remark. Now, he thought that all the nights had been switched off, which in this country they had been. However, in the Far East, the broadcast was still going out, which Ron Atkinson didn't know. Now, to be fair to Ron Atkinson, I don't think he is a racist. Ron Atkinson was a, among the very first... <laughs> Uh, managers of Premier League teams to, 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 to field black players I don't think he is a racist but he made a very racist remark he described Marcel Desailles a black French player he described him thinking the mates were off he described him to somebody in the studio as one effing lazy nigger right here's the thing that fascinates no he lost his job the, the next day and deserved to lose his job Here's the interesting thing though. 40 years ago, he would have lost his job because of the F word, right? (laughs) Nobody even noticed that. Why he lost his job was he stereotyped black people by calling them lazy and he used the very offensive N word. Yeah, That's really significant. See, 40 years ago even in Christian circles kind of joking people might use the word the N word you dare not do that now see it's not as simple as sometimes we think the world has no standards and there has been an erosion of standards but there's also the very complicated thing that there is in many ways a greater respect for the individual so it's a complicated society 30 years ago If I was a boss, I could walk into the office and pat the secretary on the bottom and make some saucy remark. Now, she might not like it, but everybody would say, well, grow up and get used to it. If I'm the boss and I walk into an office and do that today, I won't get time to clear my desk. See, it's very complicated what's happened. Now, why is that important for Christians? It's important for all sorts of reasons. But I'll tell you one reason why it's important. Because sometimes... When churches make statements that from the church, it's not a statement about people, it's a statement about principles. But in the world in which we live, it's heard as an attack on people. The classic one is when we speak about homosexuality, right? We, we believe we're speaking about a principle and our principle is that God means sexuality between one man and one woman for a lifetime. What it sounds like to people in a world that's moved from principles to people is you hate gay people. And we've got to be so careful as to how we make public statements. In fact, I think some things we shouldn't make public statements about. I don't think we should make public statements about the whole gay issue. Uh, One reason for that is there are people in our churches who are gossips. Uh, Maybe not in this church, but I've pastored local church and I had people with wagging tongues. There are people in our churches, most of us are guilty to some extent of a bit of gluttony. We eat more than we should. There are people in our churches who are greedy, who don't tithe their money to the Lord's work and keep it for themselves. We don't make public statements about them, do we? I haven't heard a minister go on television and make a statement about gossips. So I don't think we should. See, I just think we've got to be in a world that's as complex as that. We've got to share the gospel in a way that shows God's love. Now don't misunderstand me. There are times when we will need to stand up and speak for a truth. But we've got to learn to do it very, very carefully in our society. We've got two neighbors. We've got a bunch of neighbors. And you've got to know them all. Two of our neighbors, are, a couple have moved in, they're Joe and Bill. You'll guess. Joe is not, Joe's a guy. So you know, Joe and Bill are. They've been over to us for lunch. We've been to them for lunch. And the other day, Margaret just said to Joe, by the way, I want you to know I'm praying for you. And immediately he was on his guard. Ah, this is, this is the Christian thing. She's going to have a go at me. And he said, why? She said, because you're our neighbours. And we like you. And you're our friends. So I pray for you. So I think we've got to learn to show God's love. In a world that cares about people, we've got to say, actually, God cares about people far more than any of us do. He loves people. And when they know that we love the people, then we can talk about the principles. But you've got to get it the right way around for the world that we live in. See, we live in a much changed society. Now that means that we're going to be a church that's changed. So, that's, that's some heavy stuff. We need to take a little break. So Brian, what about a song? What would you... Yes, good idea. And then then Margaret and I are going to sing for you two of the best songs that have ever ever been written we are going to introduce you to five old rockers right you are going to like this perhaps not a lot but you're going to like it Brian Uh, couldn't you okay I'm going to say this and you may shoot me down for it. It is not in my mind a question any longer as to whether the church and particularly denominational churches are going to die in the 21st century. I'm going to say this to you and you may disagree. That's a question that's well settled. We are going to die. For me the question is not is the church going to die but what kind of death is the church going to die? Because I believe that if we circle the wagons and say, let's protect what we've got and let's try and make it like it was 50 years ago, we're just going to be extinct. But if we were brave enough to put everything on the altar of mission, it's not going to be easy and it's not going to be painless, but it could lead to the greatest resurrection we've ever seen. So I want to talk about dying church. What does the church need to die to in order to rise? Let me point out some things. I believe that we've got to go from maintenance to mission. See, we've moved through a couple of stages. We were for a long time in maintenance mode. How do we keep the church going? And still a lot of our efforts go into how do we keep this church going? And to some extent, that's right and inevitable. If you've got a building, you've got to keep it in repair and all that stuff. But then then we moved from just maintaining things, we moved into a kind of marketing mentality. You know the good stuff that came, and it was good stuff that came over from the States about how do we make our services seeker friendly? And that's, that's not a bad thing. We want new people to feel at home. But that really only works where people are interested in buying your product. Most people out there, and if you doubt me on this, go to Tesco or Asda on a Sunday morning. They are packed. It's like Christmas Eve. Now, none of these people, as far as I can see, are anti-church. We just don't even figure on their radar. Your worship band can get better and better. Uh, The the, the minister's sermons can be more and more relevant and biblically based, but most of them ain't coming. So even that marketing strategy, which came from America, and in America when they talk about non-church people, they're thinking about people who left the church in their generation or their parents' generation. Actually, what we have in Britain and in Europe is people who have not had any real links with the church for several generations. So even marketing won't do. We've got to move to mission. And it's what we were talking about this morning. How do we get out there with people? How do we find ways of getting to where they are? That's the great challenge for the church. And when I get to my last section, I'm going to say about what I think is actually the chief way in which that can be done. But those are the great challenges. And again, I mentioned this morning, I grew up in a, in a culture of where we had regular open air services. We need to find an equivalent of being the church where people are. And just, I mean, open air services are good, but they won't, they won't cut it. It's got to be something much, much deeper than that. So let me press my case a little further. We've got to move from invitation to incarnation. Now I used to, I still do preach sermons on the fact that, you know, the gospel is a wonderful invitation. So much of what Jesus says is in the form of an invitation. Come unto me, O you who labour and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. But you know what I didn't notice, what I failed to observe, was that the invitation only came After the incarnation, Jesus only said, come unto me, after he'd come amongst us. You know, that incarnation is divesting ourselves of all our privileges to be alongside people. Now I want to say this. I get worried that sometimes when people say they're fighting for Christianity, what they're actually fighting for is Christendom. And by Christendom we mean that for centuries... The church in Europe was powerful. You know, we still have vestiges of, of, of uh, Christendom left. The fact that the bishops of the Anglican church sit in the house of lords, they are the lords spiritual as opposed to the lords temporal, is part of that Christendom where the church had power and influence. And so much of what I hear people say is, we want the church to have that kind of power again. I don't we were never created with power. Actually, if it's true that power corrupts, there's nothing gets corrupted as quickly as the church when it becomes powerful. Just look at your history of the church and you'll see that. What God is calling us to is not to be the most powerful voice in the nation. God's calling us to be incarnational people who live in our nation with the word of God pouring from our veins and with the, with the goodness of God shining forth in everything we do. Just inviting people. By all means invite people to come to church. Please don't stop doing that. Some of your neighbours have never had an invitation. So make sure you give them one. But it has to go beyond invitation to incarnation. Let me pick another one. Closed shop to open house. These days I, I have the tremendous privilege of, of visiting loads and loads of churches. And I, I love them. Do you know right across this nation. There are wonderful people, unsung people, who will never be in the Queen's birthday honours list, in churches that will never become famous, just doing some right, good stuff. They're really good. But every church says, we're really friendly. And by the way, this church is friendly. I felt the glow as soon as I walked in, you know. But I'm going to tell you something. I'm not telling you what I don't tell every other church. You're not as friendly as you think you are, right? That's the truth about every church. And actually, actually, people are not looking for friendliness. Because you you phone anybody, you know, you you phone to have your tyre fixed and the voice on the other end will say, Hello, I'm Angela, how can I help you? And she's being friendly because that's what you do. People are longing for friendship, right? But when I talk about moving from closed shop to open house, if you've been attending church for more than six months, you have no idea of how hard it is for an average working-class family to walk into church for the first time. Honest, you have no idea how strange it's like. It's like my old dad gone to the Royal Ballet; he wouldn't have known. What, what, you know, he would just have felt embarrassed. That's what it's like for most people coming to church. We. We've got to move from being that closed shop so that when people do come, we, you know, you've heard this before, I'm not telling you anything new, but the old, the old paradigm and, and certainly you know, growing up in the Salvation Army, this is the paradigm that I grew up with, you believe, you have to come to faith in Christ. And then you master the behavior and we had strong Christian principles and we added things to it like abstinence from tobacco and alcohol and gambling and all those things. And I don't think they're bad things, but they, you know, we added them. And when you believe and you behave, then we allow you to properly to belong. We've got to find ways of allowing people to belong. We've got to say to people, if you're interested in Jesus, that's fine. Come and be part of us. You know, you, you can be part you, you're part of our fellowship. I know there's a real sense in which you're not part of the body of Christ until you come to put your faith in Christ. But people can belong and be included in our family, can they? You know, we've got to find ways of helping people belong like that. Let me give you another one, just another couple. We've got to change from being pure fellows to participants. You know, it's not, forgive me if I use a blunt colloquial phrase, It's not about getting bums on pews. You know, that's what was wrong with that evangelistic rally that I went to. You want to get your sins forgiven, become mates with God and go to the big party in heaven. That's just selling half the deal. The deal is, friends, if you commit your life to Jesus, you are committed to participating and bringing in his kingdom. We're about discipleship. Yeah? and if, if we make evangelistic appeals and then say oh by the way now we're going to tell you about discipleship it'll always be an add on we've got to you know Jesus never said just come and of your sins forgiven even to the woman overtaken in adultery that he just poured forgiveness on her he then said now go and sin no more go and live a different kind of life we are about not just people to fill pews but people who participate who are part of the body of Christ one last thing. we have got to move from rationality to spirituality. Do you know, people out there, and this again is one of those complex things about our society. At one and the same time, our society is very secular and very spiritual. And people have not rejected the church because we are too spiritual. They've often rejected us because we're not spiritual enough. You know, they've come looking for God and we've fed them a hymn sandwich. Yeah. They've come longing to hear an unmistakable word from the living God and we've fed them some nice little homily. Yeah, if, if you want to read a book, that read, it's not a Christian book, um, Nick Hornby, How to Be Good. There's a wonderful, or it's funny and it's tragic couple of pages where she decides that it's about a doctor who wants to be good. And she decides to go to church. And it's just pathetic. You know, a well-meaning person up front just sharing a few gentle truths when she's longing to discover something of God. We've, we've got to move, you know, the old kind of just four steps kind of thing, but it doesn't cut it for most people. I'm not saying it doesn't have a place, but people need to have a sense of, you know, I want, to know that I'm encountering the living God. The most important thing that you do as a church, even before the preaching of the word, I think, is the worship that people sense the presence of God because it's in that context that people begin to listen to the word. So we are got to move beyond just cold rationality where, you know, you've got to assent to, if you can sign up to these doctrines, that's fine. Now, again, I say, as I said this morning, some doctrine is important. But you can sign up to all the doctrines that you like and not have any experience of the living God. Sometimes I almost wonder, you know, we we have statements of faith, and I don't know why we have them. But I wonder sometimes it would be better if we started off with statements of values, you know. Our values are that because God loves us, we love each other. Our values are that because God forgives us, we constantly forgive each other. That kind of stuff. And that's why I think, you know, I want church to be open to people and say, I, I find that one really, really hard to believe that doctrine. Well, that's okay. That is, that's the doctrine of the church. We're not changing it to suit you. But if you struggle with it, that's okay. Just walk, come and walk the journey with us with Jesus. Because the disciples were, they were all mixed up. They got half the things wrong, but they walked with Jesus and they stayed in his company. That's the kind of spirituality we need. Right, now I'm going to talk about discipleship and get to some real, uh, I think the stuff I'm going to say in a moment or two, not because I'm saying it, but because it's, it's important stuff. I think if we took it seriously, could change our lives and change our churches. Can we do another song before then? I'm glad you took the initiative and didn't play this consumer culture. And we, you know, I'll, I'll, I'm keeping an eye on the time. We're not going to presume on your kindness but let me share this last section with you if you will is that okay good You know the bit when the preacher gets to where he stops preaching and he starts meddling? I'm going to start meddling now, okay? Just to warn you. I'm going to suggest that as we've done before, you know, changing the question from how do we get people to come to church to how do we take the church and the Lord of the church to people. I'm going to suggest another change of question. Let me suggest, here's the question we've been asking for a whole lot. Of my lifetime. How will the United Kingdom be won? And we've had various evangelistic initiatives. And they've all had worth in them. I don't denigrate any of them. Wherever people are concerned enough. That you know let's try and do something. To take the gospel to people. I'm going to be supporting it. However. I have to say. That even after a decade of evangelism. And all the other programs. The nation in which we live has not been impacted in the way that we had hoped or imagined or prayed for. That's not to criticise anybody because I've been part of all these things. It's just to recognise the truth of things. Let me suggest that we might change the question to this. We might change it from how will the UK be won to this? Who will win the UK for God? What if This is not about a new strategy. What if it's not about a new program? What if it's not about another uh, new initiative? What if it's about us? Because actually, we are the body of Christ. One of the people I admired most, and he went to be with the Lord far too early from our point of view, was John Wimber. Wimber was great on healing because with John Wimber, there was none of this, you come up to the front and I'll be the big healer and lay hands on you. If somebody was ill, Wimber would say, well, you're the body of Christ. You gather around and you you lay hands and pray for that person. I love that approach. And when it comes to winning this nation for God and for good, we are the body of Christ. Let me show you a diagram, please. What you see... What what you see there is 100 dots, okay? You can count them if you want, but if you don't want to do that, trust me. There are 100 dots, and in the corner, there are seven red dots. And those seven red dots represent the fact that roughly 7% of people in the United Kingdom today have any meaningful link with church. Now, that's everybody. Uh, That's not just the hardcore members who turn up every week and during the week. That's people who have any kind of meaningful link, people who come once a month, all that kind of thing. So, if you look at that, you have to say, we are a tiny minority in our country. What you see, which of it's that? We're just a tiny minority. That then influences where we put our emphasis. Now, if if we see the church just as this tiny minority of people who meet on a Sunday and meet through the week, then we will put our emphasis in three areas. We'll put them on A, for attendance, on B, for our buildings, maintaining our buildings, and we'll put them on C, cash. And by the way, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a believer that what you do with your cash, what you do with your pocketbook is as important as what you do with your prayer book. I make no apologies for challenging Christians about their giving. But, but that tends to be where many churches place their emphasis on that ABC of attendance. We need to fill the place on a Sunday. We need to maintain the building and we need the cash to do it and to run some programs. And that's not bad in itself. But it is insufficient. It is incomplete. What if you change the perspective? Here's the same diagram, but those seven red dots are now scattered amongst a hundred. And because they're a vibrant and distinctive colour, what you notice is not just the grey mass, but the seven red dots. Here's the point I'm making. Those. of the nation who are Christians are scattered amongst society like that Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday and Saturday. So, and if they are as distinctive in their living as those red dots are amongst the the dreary grey colour, if they're as distinctive as that, they will have some kind of Impact. Now, if you change your perspective to that and say, actually, these people don't just meet in church on Sunday, they are scattered throughout society, they're not just part of the gathered church, they're part of the scattered church, then you change your emphasis. Because instead of just emphasizing attendance at church, maintaining the building, finding sufficient cash, actually, what the church is about is D for discipleship. See, here's the point. Everybody in this room knows at least 10 other people. Yeah? For most of us, it will be significantly more than that. But you know, I reckon, you know 10 people who are not Christians. Yeah? That means when your minister preaches on a Sunday, he's not, let's say there's 80 people here on the Sunday, eighty hundred people. He's not just preaching to 80 people. Actually, what he is saying and what you take away could impact the lives of 800 people if you're as distinct as those red dots. Yeah? So, why is it that if we are the people in whom the Holy Spirit lives, the people whom Jesus has called to be disciples, why is it that we are not making a greater impact on our culture and our society? And the answer is this we have had within the church a sacred secular divide. Now, we may have intellectually said, no, all of life is God's, but actually, what we by default, what we've said to each other is the sacred part of life, the God part, is what we do in church on a Sunday. This is the God part, and the other stuff is, is stuff I need to do. I mean, I've heard people even say it in words. I've heard people when I've said to them, as a pastor, uh, you know, thank you for what you've done in church this week, uh, and they've said to me, Well, this is my service for God. And I respected that. They weren't wrong. But actually, it was only part of their service for God. Now again, don't misunderstand me. Because I, you know, as somebody who's spent 20 odd years as a pastor in local church I appreciate people who take on responsibilities in the church people who teach in Sunday school people who who do the youth work people who staff the kitchen for the luncheon club people who do all that stuff I hugely appreciate that and churches need it but it it is only a part of our service for God but we've said the sacred part is just the part that we spend in church the other bit, well, that really doesn't have too much to do with our Christian living. Now, of course, we've, we've remembered things like personal morality. It's important to be honest and all that kind of stuff. But, but we haven't really seen that as, well, let me save that bit for a moment. Let, let me give you this from Alan Roxborough. He says, discipleship Emerges out of prayer and study and dialogue and worship by a community learning to ask questions of obedience as they are engaged directly in mission. That's that's really well put. A community learning to ask questions of obedience. We are a community we meet to say to God, what do you want us to do? I, some of you may know Chris Somerton. Chris Somerton is a professor and he's, uh, he's at one of the big hospitals in Manchester and he heads up Network, which is the Evangelical Alliance in Manchester. And as part of my role with LICC, I've been talking to people saying, what does it mean for you to be a disciple of Jesus in your everyday work? And Chris said to me when I asked him that, well... I've got to be competent as a doctor. I've got to be courteous and compassionate. And I stopped him and said, Chris, that, that's true. But you would tell any young doctor that, whether he was a Christian or a Muslim or a Buddhist or no faith. What's the distinctive thing about being a follower of Jesus? And this is what he said. He said, after he thought for a moment, I think it is because in every situation I'm asking, What are you doing here, God? And what is the part that I've got to play in it? What are you doing here, God? What is the part I have to play in it? Let me put it like this, please. We need a whole life gospel and a whole life Christianity and a whole life discipleship. The sacred secular divide is wrong. Let me give you some quite startling figures. You have in every week, we all have, I have, you have 168 hours in a week, right? Let's assume that you sleep 48 hours of those, yeah? That leaves you, and even have a little snooze here, that's okay, you're just resting your eyes. That leaves you, that leaves you with 120 hours. Now listen to this, I don't know if you've ever thought about this. Unless you're retired with extra available time, the most that people will spend in specifically church activities is 10 hours a week. Actually, that's more than most people spend. You think about well, that's actually quite a lot of time, right? But you will spend in non church activities, you'll spend a total of 110 hours a week, right? So that's when you're earning a living, when you're with your family, when you're shopping, when you're cutting the lawn, when you're engaged in some leisure pursuit, when you go to see a movie or whatever, when you're chatting across the fence to your neighbors, when you're just doing all the stuff that you have to do in life. Now, if we say that the sacred bit of life is the bit that we spend in church and the other bit is secular, just see what we're doing. We've, we've reduced God to a tiny fraction of life, which practically is what we've often done. He's the God of that 10%. Now, I don't mean that when we're, you know, when we're away from church, we're all leading sinful lives. I don't mean that at all. But we've seen that very often. There's something I have to do. Actually, it's more than that. When I was a kid growing up, we used to sing a, a chorus. Just where he needs me, my Lord has placed me. Just where he needs me, there will I be. And since he's found me, by love he's bound me to serve him joyfully. Do you see? Just See, what you do in those 110 hours is not just happenstance. God has put you there, and that's that's where he will form you, and that's where he will use you. Do you see the point I'm making, how hugely important is the time that we spend outside of church. Now, that doesn't make the time that we spend in church less important. Paradoxically, it makes it more important because this is the place where we should be equipped. This is the place where we share with others. This is the place where we are with our family who will pray for us and equip us where we can share our challenges and our joys and our sorrows. That 10 hours becomes hugely important because it has an impact way beyond the walls of this church and way beyond the size that this church could ever become. I want to show you a little diagram, please. Put it up, Margaret, if you will. This is very helpful, this little diagram. At least it's helpful for me. There's, a, there's four circles there, right? Right at the beginning where I'm shining this little red dot, that's the gathered church. That is the 10 hours that you spend in church. That's really important right we're not minimizing the importance of that when we meet together as the lord's people that's massively important the circle beyond that are the activities that's the green circle the activities close to the daily life of the church now this is an area where churches have done better in the last 25 years or so it used to be especially evangelical churches that would be open on a sunday and they'd be open through the week for Bible study and that was it. Now I had a glance at your website and you're doing all sorts of stuff like most churches are, right? That we, you know, there's luncheon clubs and, and brownies and activities for kids and activities for the elderly. And lots of churches are, are, are doing things for people with addiction problems and gambling problems. That yellow circle, uh, sorry, that green circle, the activities close to the daily life of the church they're really important and I often say to people and I was heading up Hope in Manchester I used to say if the church went on strike tomorrow the people who would feel the draft first would be the non-members the people to whom we minister yeah? and government are beginning to realise just how much the church does there but, but well no I'll come back to it I'll come back to it I want to go to the outside circle the big issues of today's life now Valentine's Day Being the romantic kind of individual I am, I was overwhelmed by a sense of love for my wife and my life's partner. So I went out and I bought her something I knew she would love, a dark chocolate Kit Kat. It was one with the four fingers. It wasn't just a two-finger one. I went the whole hog on this one. I was delighted to see that even Nestle, and they have not had a good record on this stuff, even Nestle are now making their chocolate from fair trade chocolate that's great because kids were living in terrible conditions and you know why they've done that because in that big circle the big issues of today's world the church has got more active isn't it great that Steve Chalk has been appointed a United Nations ambassador on on, uh, human slavery and trafficking thing that's wonderful that's great and we should be proud of that and we should not back off on that but I've ignored the yellow circle right Now, let me go back to that green circle. Remember that? That's the red circle, right? That's the the gathered church activities, when we meet for worship. The green is what we do through all our clubs and activities that support the community. There's two limitations to that green circle. One is that it will impact people within a mile of our church, maybe a mile and a half, not usually much more than that. That's not, that's not, it's just the limitation of it, right? The other limitation of it is that many of the church members, although they may be supportive of that green circle, can't actually be involved in that because they're at work or they live too far away or they've got family circumstances. Do you see what I mean? So here's where we've got to start thinking about. Give us the next button, Mark, if you please, and, and then give us the next one which will give us the little arrow life outside of church, the activities of the 110. That's the one we've neglected, the 110 hours, where most church members will be for most of the week. So the challenge for this church is not just are the church services good, are the is a good worship, is, is the preaching solid and enlightening and inspiring that's that's absolutely important to ask those questions and the challenge for the church is not just you know what are we doing for other people around us though that's an important question and the challenge for the church is not just so are we involved in these big issues are we involved in fair trade and with the election coming up and all that stuff the challenge, the big challenge we face is how do we equip our people for that circle there Because that's where they will live most of their discipleship. And we have not been equipping them. So I'm suggesting this to you. I'm suggesting there has to be a big shift. There's got to be a great big shift in our emphasis. And the big shift is this. Move on to the next slide, Mark, if you will. We, our emphasis has been on recruiting and retaining people. And again, churches, and Margaret and I have worked hard on this with the, especially the the, the last local church we led, we worked hard on this saying, we've got to find ways of welcoming people and integrating them. And it's really important. There's no good of getting people in the front door and they just walk out the back door, right? But we've got to move the emphasis beyond that from recruit and retain to resource and release. Simple little story I was sharing over lunch I spoke with a Methodist guy. And this is not to knock the Methodist because you could say this about any denomination. But he moved to a new town and he'd been attending the church for four weeks. And the minister sat down with him and said, it's really good to have you. You seem to have settled. Now, how could we use you in the church? Do you sing tenor? Right? How different would it have been if the minister's first question had been, it's great to see you in this church? You seem to have settled. Now how is Jesus using you every day? What are the opportunities and challenges with your family? What are the opportunities and challenges at your work? What are the opportunities and challenges with your neighbours? Do you see what I mean? It goes beyond recruiting and retaining people. To How do we resource them? And release them. Move on to the next slide, if you would, Margan. We're almost finished and you've been wonderful. Thank you so much for your attention. Look, that red shape there represents the church. There's a little red dot down in the corner. Worship, relationships and mission. And, and that's where we have put most of our emphasis in the 10 O's. Actually, we need to put renewed emphasis. The primary arena for discipleship is not in the church. The primary arena for discipleship is work, home, and leisure. Now, like I say, that doesn't make the church less important. It makes the church, the body of Christ, more important. That's where we're supported and prayed for. And equip. So we've got to, you see, we've got to move that emphasis to we're equipping people for the 110 hours. Now if we do that, that won't guarantee that our church will double in size next year. This is not one of those quick fix things. This is, actually, the gospel mandate is not just to grow the church. The gospel mandate is to transform society. Yeah? It's not just to grow the church. Of course I want to grow the church. But our mandate is way beyond that. To be the people of Christ out in the world. And success is not having five hundred members. It's far more significant for a church to be made up of fifty disciples than five hundred pew fellows. Last slide, of you will, Mar, please. So what we sometimes talk about, you know, so how do, we, how do we transition to become that kind of church? Well, you know the illustration. If you're sailing the Queen Mary across the Atlantic and you decide you'll do a U-turn, what will happen is there'll be a terrible collapse and people will fall over and there'll be all sorts of damage in the ship. What you do if you want to change course when you're sailing across the Atlantic, is just a one degree shift. Now nobody will notice it, but two days later, you'll be heading for quite a different destination from what you would have been. We talk, when I'm sharing people with regard to the imagined thing, we talk about one degree shifts in church life. So some churches, for example, have started what they call triple T. So every Sunday morning, there's a triple T spot this time tomorrow so somebody is interviewed for three minutes where will you be this time tomorrow morning on a typical Monday morning where will you be what are the challenges you'll face what are the opportunities how can we pray for you, you it's the simplest thing yeah? and there's all sorts of little one degree shifts see I think we should I, I'm, I'm coming to the conclusion we shouldn't invite people to Bible studies any longer we, we should invite, invite people to discipleship, accountability. Now the Bible will have to be at the heart of that. But it's you know you can study the Bible and study the Bible and you know you know you know more stuff about the Bible. But we need to be. What, what else could we do? Well, instead of depending on the pastor, the minister to do everything, people need to learn to mentor each other. You know, we. We'll hold each other accountable. We'll meet for coffee every week, just for half an hour. We'll pray together. We won't won't just pray for the whole world. There's a time to do that. But we're going to pray for each other. And I'm going to say to you, how are you doing in your discipleship? Uh, Do you see, there's just a couple of things, but we've got to make whole life disciples. We're sunk if we don't. We're sunk if we don't. So what I do with, my, with half of my week is I act as a church life consultant. When a church invites us, uh, we, we do a survey with them. Um, that's always very interesting what comes out of that. Um, and and, and you, you can begin to identify the little things that will begin to engender this whole life discipleship. In. But it begins to make life so exciting. You know, for so many people, I think church life is... It's a bit of a grind. Well, it's my duty to be there. I better go and support it. And we've lost that excitement of actually what we're doing together on a Sunday could change this world for God and for good for all eternity. Mark, let's do the Little E. song to finish with. You've been great. Thanks ever so much for listening. Oh, I should have said, and I always forget to say this, there's some books on the table at the back. There are about a couple of pounds. Oh, you've got a couple there. I'm... Others is a book based on the story of Jonah, which is a wonderful story about the church breaking through barriers. Um, and this one, uh, that Spring Harvest published, Terrible Beauty, just grew out of a time of change and pain in my life. But it's not, it's not about me in any way, but it's about how, um, you know, the guy who wrote the book, What's Amazing About Grace, Philip Yancey. It's wonderful book that grace is unconditional. God loves you because he loves you. Yancey's dead, right? But I wanted to say, yeah, it is unconditional, but it's also uncompromising and it may be uncomfortable because God will not, he'll accept you as you are, but he won't stop until he's made you what he wants you to be. So it's a book about the terrible beauty of grace. Um, and they're a couple of pounds cheaper than they are in any of the Christian bookshops. Uh, and also Margaret's, uh, front door, your own front door project um, which helps to raise money for a Josh life project, just a wonderful project in inner city Manchester if you're interested do have a look and that's the end of any advertising uh, ah yeah let's do tell the world the Jesus story if you can drop my mic a bit we were asked to sing at an event when Margaret's dad should have been the preacher but in the interim between being invited and the event happening uh, he went to be with the Lord, uh, but we knew the kind of stuff he would have talked about, so we sang it for him. And we did it by using an old gospel song and writing some new words and music to go with it, and this is it. i am done to tell the story, it will be- My favourite broadcaster years ago was a guy called John Ebden. He used to do this quirky little broadcast every Monday morning on Radio 4 at quarter to nine. He just would sort of troll things out of the BBC archives. Some of them were whimsical, some were funny. But he always ended his broadcast every Monday morning, two minutes to nine. Broadcast ended in the same way. And whenever I speak these days, I often steal his lines because he always ended his broadcast by saying, as I say to you, well, first of all, thanks ever so much for having Margaret and me. Thanks for making us so very welcome. It's been a privilege. Thank you for recording us the privilege of your pulpit. We really appreciate that. But to use John Ebden's words, if you have been, thanks for listening.